From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. If Gmail were to get hacked and everybody's information were vulnerable and you could just troll all the accounts and pull the information out, Google would, I 100% believe, shut down Gmail for a day and be like, listen, you all have to just wait it out while we fix this bug. Yet, if we had the same thing happening with actual violence, not your data, but actual violence, there is no way to shut it down. Hello, welcome to Mr. Clancho on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Anil Dash, who is a technologist. He's a CEO of Glitch. He is the host of the excellent podcast, Function. I, I really like the concept of this podcast. He, he basically explores a particular like wrinkle in tech and tries to unspool how those design decisions or how that piece of technology is affecting other things in the culture. It, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good sort of starting narrow and going wide approach to technology. He's a very sharp guy. Um, I've been reading his essays online for years, and I got a chance to talk to him uh, for the show. And he had recently written this really great piece about 12 things everybody should know about technology. And it was a really, really perceptive way of thinking about how technology is actually changing us, how it's changing the world, and, and how it's being designed. Um, I think it was a good kind of corrective to some overly negative takes about what is going on in Silicon Valley, but it's also a really good jumping off point to try to think more realistically uh, than we have, uh, certainly for, for most of the, the industry's development, uh, about why why things seem to be going so wrong lately. Um, so trying to get a better model of how things actually work is is one of the, the, the great joys of the show. And I think in the show, Anil really offers one. Um, as always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Anil Dash. Anil Dash, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start with something that you wrote actually a few years ago. Why should we stop talking about the technology industry as a thing? You know, I think it's it's not a meaningful phrasing, right? If, if we said every industry that uses electricity is part of, you know, or every company uses electricity as part of the electricity industry, it wouldn't make any sense. And so it's like when something's that pervasive, it's not a standalone you know, realm. And especially when like, if you say, what are comp- what do companies in the tech industry do? Well, they help you hail a cab and they'll deliver soup to you. And they will also uh, help you choose a babysitter and do word processing, right? Like it, it's, it's an incoherent and they'll put a speaker in your living room to spy on you, right? Like there's, there's just like, those can't possibly all be the same industry. And what's funny to me is that when we talk about the tech industry, we don't tend to mean SpaceX. Right. 
right? Which like I think yeah, in not a, like deep tra- tech, heavy in tech. a traditional understanding of tech, like that's yeah. tech. Yeah, or, or you know the cutting edge <laughs> of like genetics or something, right? And like that stuff is no, that's not tech. What we mean is like a phone. This seems like a rare moment of convergence for you and Peter Thiel. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, I still wouldn't count it necessarily as an. You're, you're not even willing to. <laughs> no, you know, it's it's not a lot. Fair enough. Um, all right, so I wanted to structure this interview around a piece you wrote that I thought was super interesting. Um, back in April, maybe was it called 12 Things That Everybody Should Know About Technology?" Mm-hmm. And I thought you covered a lot of ground here in a way that was really helpful. So, so why don't we start with number one? Tech is not neutral. Yeah. I mean, this is the most important thing, which is that we act like, well, we act almost like this is just received from high above. We get a phone and it has apps on it. It just is what it is. And every single little choice, every button was sweated over. Everything was a decision and they have huge implications. And I think like, you know, a simple one is just until, I don't know, five years ago, the majority of photos that had ever been taken were rectangular and then they were square. And that was because Instagram got big enough that everybody started to say, we're going to take our photos this way. And this shapes almost like your window on the world, right? And that, I mean, that's like a minor cosmetic thing. But you're saying, um, what, what you're saying there, it sounds to me, is tech is designed. It isn't, as you mm-hmm. say, it's not given from on high. Right. But, but neutral is different. I think neutral is an interesting phrasing there. How does square versus rectangular make it non-neutral? Right. Well, so that, that's, you know, that's about form, but that translates all the way into what kind of things can you share? And what are the things that you're encouraged to express or to create? And, you know, and especially that there are values about, for example, you know, I, I look at something like Uber. It's a very strong statement about what labor should be in the world. And it's packaged as a convenience as an app for being able to hail a car. But it's, it's, it's you know, if you were trying to invent a machine to undermine labor, you couldn't come up with something more efficient than what it is. And so that's somewhere like a hundred people in Silicon Valley were like, challenge accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. But 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 to that point. Right. So so there's this sense where they're like, oh, you've you know, you've caught us. You've seen the man behind the curtain and you see what the you know, the agenda is. And and, and yet we sort of say, well, but that's how that's how the app works. And you see, you know, like people who are fluent in policy, like people who are, you know, mayors of cities be like, oh, but that's just. You know, that's what Uber does. It's like somebody made a choice. This feels really important to me because something that I'm afraid of as we move into a world of algorithms is that algorithms hide the choices we make. Mm-hmm. That the algorithm says you're not viable for this mortgage. The algorithm says that, um, you know, this Donald Trump tweet should be at the top of everybody's feeds and not yeah. this other thing. The alg- And when it's the algorithm, there that detachment from human beings yeah. gives it a kind of authority. And, and it's like some gatekeeper saying um, this is what you should be looking at or this is you, you should or should not get this um, loan does not. That's right. The algorithm is a veiling of the fact that it's still the people at that company making the choice. And when YouTube chooses to show disturbing content as related videos to my seven year old son, that is a choice that people at YouTube are making and people at Google and Alphabet are making. And that when they say, well, the algorithm did, it's like, well, who made the algorithm? And you can make it not do that. And I know you could do that because, for example, if it were, you know, a copyrighted version of a Beyonce song, you'd instantly stop it from being shared. 
So the algorithm is a set of choices about values and what you want to invest in. And that is, to that point, you know, technology has values, is not neutral. You had another line I liked about this in a, in a, in a different piece where you wrote that Mark Andreessen, the, the venture capitalist, famously said that software is eating the world. But it's far more accurate, now you're writing, to say that the neoliberal values of software tycoons are eating the world. Talk a little bit about that, the, 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 val- the values you're talking about there. Uh, sometimes I come out a little hot. Um, you know, the, the – and I mean I'm as guilty of this as anybody, right, is I worked in Silicon Valley for many years. I still – you know, I'm the CEO of a tech company. I'm not, you know, saying I'm not complicit in this. But I hadn't interrogated my own assumptions about, for example, labor. Like how are we going to change the relationship people have to their work and to their agency over their careers and, and, and you know, their, their sort of connection to how their careers are going to advance? And that we just sort of dabbled. We just sort of dilly-dallied in building tech and that it incidentally disrupted industries. So I look at my personal role of building, um, you know, early social media tools, blogging tools. And I was like, okay, it's going to give people voice. They're going to be able to express themselves. All of that was true. They took the, you know, people took it and, and did great and expressive and extraordinary things. And it did. You're welcome. Yeah, right, right. And it did destabilize tr- conventional media. And we probably did not have sufficient reverence and understanding for what institutions of good journalism meant in the world and that we were introducing a free-for-all. Um, you know, while there were, you know, marginalized voices that were empowered, there are also uh, deliberately, you know, misinformational voices that were empowered too. And we took that as an acceptable risk. And maybe we should have been more cagey about it. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting about that line that, that I do think is true is we talk about neoliberal. People are talking about a lot of things. But I often think about neoliberal, particularly in a cultural way, mm-hmm. as being an elevation of consumer choice. Mm-hmm. as the highest of all guiding principles. Yes. And what seems to me to be true about the technology industry is it believes extremely strongly that whatever someone has chosen to do in that moment is what they truly want. And they should be given more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. And the algorithm should give them more of it and send it to everyone else. And that one of the things that, that worries me about where technology has been going is that a lot of human culture, religion, society has often been about slowing our impulses down or fighting against some of them. Yes. And the the way that I think neoliberalism and, you know, kind of capitalist choice markets, et cetera, creates an, a problematic ideology in tech is that so much of it is based on, well, there's nothing to criticize here so long as we're basing this off of what people are doing in the moment. Right. Didn't these people freely choose this? Didn't they choose to share their data? Didn't they choose to use these apps? And part of it is we've designed technology to only let you make an immediate choice, no long-term choices. I failed very definitively in this and that I had a startup that was trying to encourage people to think long-term about social media and like you're going to feel good about the time you spend online. And of course, uh, we couldn't make it go because you're dependent on the Twitters and Facebooks of the world letting you have access to your own data, which they don't want to do. They only want to give it to others. And so it was a really interesting thing because, you know, the questions that arose in building a product like that, a service like that, everybody understood immediately, oh, what does it mean if this information is visible in 10 years and 20 years? Or what does it mean if I'm spending this much time online and on these pursuits, you know, and with talking to these people and just reflecting back, we'd hold up a mirror. Here's how many people you said thank you to. Here's how many people you said congratulations to. Do you feel good about that? Is that headed in the right way? And it's a very different thing of analytics. And did I immediately get that adrenaline jolt from somebody liked what I shared? Somebody gave me a heart, right? 
And those design choices are about prioritizing immediacy. And it is a direct parallel between that and, uh, you know, capitalist corporations talking about focusing on a quarter instead of a year, instead of a decade, instead of a lifetime. And, you know, again, like I say this as a user of social media, as, as a CEO of a tech company that I, you know, hope is quite successful. And it, long-term thinking is essential, right? You have, to, you have to be able to balance that stuff. And even within tech, the people they say they revere, the Steve Jobs of the world, he was a very long-term thinker, you know, on decades scale, regularly. Bill Gates, a long, long-term thinker. So the people who they say they revere regularly say, I don't care about this quarter. I don't care about this year. I'm thinking about the, the decades that our you know, company's going to exist and our products are going to exist in. And yet they, they, they throw that lesson away as soon as it comes time to design the modern products. And I think that is something that uh, is remiss. And, and it's wild to me that, you know, as much as, you know, Microsoft in the 90s was the, you know, the, the boogeyman. Now they look, it's quaint. It's like, wow, they, 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 yeah. they look like, the, oh, well, you put you paid money and they gave you software. That seems like a fair deal. There's one other piece of tech not being neutral I want to talk about, which is we're moving into this period. And I never know how much I really buy it, but we're moving into artificial intelligence and deep learning and all this driving a lot more of the technology industry. And one thing that seems to me to have been proven out again and again is that if you are training all these programs on the data we create, they're not neutral because we're not neutral. Uh, Brian Resnick at, at Vox did a great feature, I think about a year ago now, about how quickly artificial intelligence programs learn to be racist. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it happens very fast because yeah. it turns out if you're training people on Google data, for instance, mm -hmm. where pretty, like people are racist, and so they quickly learn, um, they quickly learn racist associations. And that way in which we are going to transmute the data we have created into the data that teaches computers, and then the computers are just going to be like computers speaking from on high. Right. And we're going to see that as as neutral. I feel like we can see what's coming on that. So that's, yeah, and that's all around us. It's just getting faster and more intense. And and I look at pre-computer systems, right? So you look at um, how did we encapsulate our, our biases systemically uh, before we had computers everywhere? And we did it in policy and code and zoning, right? Redlining is a perfect example of like, we're going to build a framework for you know, almost physically encoding our biases and our, and our systemic racism. And that was at the slow pace of how law and policy are made, right? If there's one change in a year, that's a lot. And what the AI systems are doing, a good way to think about it is that deep blue IBM computer used to play chess and or like win at Jeopardy and is sort of learning the questions and learning how to move in chess and it's thinking 10 steps ahead or gaming out every possible chess game that could possibly go from that movie you just made. And then pointing that at how do you defend racist systems? How do you defend biased systems with that same intensity? We've gamed out every possible way that you could undermine systemic bias and try to anticipate it and prevent it, right? Because we want to be able to preserve the model, the thing that we've taken the impression of. We have to defend at all costs. Like that is the design, the bias of learning systems is they're trying to enforce what they learn from. Oh, that is a grim way to put that. Yeah, it gets even worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before before we lose everybody in depression. Yeah, sorry. Number two here, tech is not inevitable. Yeah, um, this one's great because it, that this actually is the antidote to that. I think some of those depressing parts of this, which is we think, oh well, then these techs, this tech exists, the software's created, therefore all the bad things are about to happen, and it ain't necessarily so. 
right? Um, there are well, one again, like to go back to the the people that everyone reveres, the the, the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates of the world, or whoever, um, or even Mark Zuckerberg. It's always treated as well. They said this is going to be a new thing, and we're all going to have it. And you look at like you know, Amazon put out a phone that could not have flopped harder than it did, right? Facebook tried to do a, a phone and you know a home app, and it just cratered. And you know, Steve Jobs had tons of failures where they like. He's like, he made a Mac that was a cube. I was, we had a coworker who's younger who'd never seen this thing. And he's like, that existed? Like, I have no idea. I defend the cube. Uh, you know, it aesthetically, was a nice piece of design, aesthetically, I think. sure. But, you know, it was a piece was a of crap. I was a Mac fanboy when I was young. Yeah. I was well, into all, I had a, you remember when Mac had clones for a minute? Sure. Yeah. I had a, I had a, wow. So you were all in. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. all in. Okay. And like, back when like Mac had 2% of the market. I was going to say, yeah, weird. I didn't, I didn't have $5,000 to spend on a Lucite cube. So I was, you know, well, I didn't have a cube either. <laughs> I, I got, I mean, I, I'm not I, don't, judging. I don't know. I don't know how deep this is going to go. But when my parents got divorced when I was young, wow. One of the ways that that got softened for me was that my, my my new house, my other house, I got to have a Bondi Blue, the first iMac. Right. Okay. And like you know, it. it's like on the yeah. one hand, your parents are getting divorced. On the other hand, you get a you get the the new iMac. So. I'm certain you're not the only person that can that has that story. Right? <laughs> That's a weird thought that it I'm probably might, not. Yeah. No. That feels like a specific. Yeah. But I'm or sure think it's about not. like first iPod. Like somebody had those big chunky iPods, oh, yeah, and definitely. that was like this is Dad's new house, and it comes with an iPod. Right. <laughs> Sorry, but uh, that digression aside, there, there are all these things that, and then I mean, we talk about products that flop, but I think. This is true about technical initiatives. And actually, one of the funniest things, and I'm, again, super guilty of this, is tech people say, oh, well, you know, there's all this confusion and, and problems in the market or users have this problem. And so we're going to come up with a new technical standard and that'll solve it. Right. And, and this always happens is that the, the big companies get together and they're, you know, you end up with the HD DVD versus Blu-ray thing for 10 years. And then everybody's like, all right, fine. None of this, this all sucks. We're just going to watch Netflix. And, and so there's this like well-intentioned techno determinism like if we get the right features they're just going to do whatever we say and it's not true like you have to have you know the right impulse to match what people want in culture they have to have that sort of degree of trust um i mean i look at like snapchat which seems to be sort of flailing a little bit and it, you know it was like a whim it's like the right kardashian says the right thing about your app and then says the wrong thing and and you know the wind sways and there, there are, I'm sure, very talented engineers there who are like, but I busted my ass on this new filter, and isn't it technically impressive? And it's like, that doesn't matter. But this goes back to values, I think. I've come to believe that the way we talk about Luddites is really damaging mm -hmm. because we've created this derogatory word for anyone who sees a new technology coming and says, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe right. we should hold off. Right. You know, I, I don't want to get into like a deep thing about like whether the Luddites were right to try to save looming at the time. But <laughs> but it is not we have a cultural conversation around technology that if a new technology is coming, you better just get on board. Maybe you can think about making some changes on the edges. Maybe you can think about talking about it in a different way. But whatever we've invented, we should be deploying it as fast as humanly possible. And like that's how things go. And the critics are always wrong. Right. I've been on a, a kick of reading technology criticism from the 80s recently i'm bringing on neil postman yeah yeah it's great and what's shocking to me is in my head i had figured well they were all wrong about all this stuff and actually they were right about all of it yeah um, the critics were right now other things were true too nothing's all good nothing's all bad right they may not have foreseen the good parts they but their criticisms the weren't wrong and, and that's been really shocking to me to just realize like how strongly the cultural conversation dismisses 
um, anybody who says stop or slow down or or maybe this I was reading Postman and he's so cranky. But then I think, like, what is the world we're living in? And like, if you had explained Twitter to him, <laughs> like he would have killed you. Yeah. <laughs> Correctly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting thing, too, because the problem actually and, and I think there is a weakness in a lot of the criticism. And this is true. The 80s is true now where they're not fluent enough in the technology to have a nuanced criticism because they are, they do tend to be people who are resistant to the new tech must be a danger. They're not wrong about identifying the threat, but they're not fluent enough to articulate it in a way that's effective. And I think that's a really tough thing about the criticism is you sort of by nature are going to want to be a person who's like, well, yeah, I don't need to know all that stuff because there's this, this risk. And, and then what happens is because of that sort of lack of fluency, the, the technologists still define the framing of the entire conversation, right? And so if I look at an example of uh, self-driving trucks are coming, there's whatever it is, three or four million truck drivers in America, and they're at risk of losing their jobs. So everybody sort of understands this framework. And that is actually, that t- tends to be the media framing, the, the sort of public conversation is that. And then the critics say, well, we should protect the truck drivers. They're not wrong in saying that. And then they say, so we should, and they can only look in the conventional methods and what they know when they're fluent. It's like, we should regulate the deployment of self-driving truck technology. And it's like, you're not going to win that. There's no way you're going to win that because you don't have the dollars to pay enough policymakers to make the regulation go your way. Now, I don't want that to be that technologists can outspend you and therefore that is what policy is, but that's where we're at. So then how would you be effective? And one of the things I look at is, the coders, the people doing the work, not not the execs of the tech companies, the people who are going to actually write that code, they are not personally invested in displacing truck drivers. That's a, that's a non-goal to them. They're, that's incidental to them. Now, should they care more? Yes. Should they be more fluent in these things? Yes. Do they have power? Kind of, in an interesting way. And that's one of the other things we haven't recognized is like coders are, theoretically, among the most empowered laborers who have ever existed. But collectively, they're just finding that power. And so they haven't had this conversation where they say, what if we redefine the problem we're solving, which is how do we use automation technology to make trucking more efficient? But the goals could be safer for drivers, more profitable for everyone, architected in a way that is valuable to drivers and to trucking companies, right? Like those are all choices. Those are design choices. But I think a problem with the way you frame that there is we have a tendency sometimes to talk about groups that are very poorly coordinated yes as institute coders right coders right. do have a ton of power but they're not but coordinated a coder working at waymo or wherever yeah. they might yeah. be working they don't have a lot of power no. right they're yeah. like their product manager i don't know who runs coders, yeah. but that's right um but their product manager whoever or whoever's given them a job you know and they you know they're busy and they're behind on deadlines and so i think the question with a lot of that is you might have very different outcomes if groups and institutions could coordinate better. I think about this all the time. Even as part of the media, I talk about the media. Right. And there is um, no the media. And there is no the media. Uh, it, I always joke that if we actually were coordinating the way people think we are, like, this would <laughs> actually be, be going a lot better. Yeah, 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 like, it'd yeah. be, things would be a lot more in yeah, balance right. and in proportion, but we don't. And Conspiracies so actually, would be great if we could pull them off. Conspiracies would be great if we could pull them off. And so I, I do wonder about that exercise of power. The thing about... Uh, like a CEO class, say, mm-hmm. is at least at the top of an organization, a CEO has some amount of power to mm-hmm. execute what they want done. Yeah, there's a coherence to the there's role. There's a coherence to the role. Whereas in a lot of these, there's a lot of power in the collective. 
But and, you know, you could get into a question of like, could you imagine unions that are using power in this way? Yeah. And this, right? so this is an interesting thing because we are at the birth of the labor movement in the tech world right now. That's really I think that's a really good point. Right. The last two years has been this. I mean, I grew up in a union household. My mom was in union for 25 years. Like, that's the world I come from. What union? Um, asked me. So she was, uh, both my folks were state workers and, you know, that's, that's, that, that was, you know, we got the newsletter every week and it was on print and, you know, here's what they're doing with your, your union dues. And so for me, um, it was, that was just context. That's what you do. And, and, and I worked in construction and everybody was trades. And so like that, that's sort of the, you know, the world I came up in and, uh, which is unusual in tech. And so that to me was very instructive where, I didn't think we were ever going to get there in tech. They were just sort of like, not, why, why would I do that? Right. And I look at a couple moments, you know, the beginning of last year, the uh, Never Again Tech Pledge that bubbled up of workers across companies, not just in one company, saying, we're not going to build a Muslim registry, basically. We're not going to build a religious registry. And that was the first sort of fear of God moment across the, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, because they're, or Palantir or whatever, where all these folks are saying, like, I can walk. Right. Like I think like this is a well-paid industry and everybody's trying to hire me if you've got these skills to build mm -hmm. this kind of thing. So I can just walk. And, and then it was such a broad show of solidarity. And you go from there to, you know, a couple of months ago, the Google walkout. Um, it, one, I think it's a straight line. I think it's the same muscle building exercise, the same labor building exercise and 20,000 people around the world. That is extraordinary extraordinary. I mean, you know, when you see Marriott workers, you're like, sure. Yeah. That's like, that's a rough as hell job, like doing housekeeping, but like Google folks, like you get free candy and you get massages and you get a, you know, a shuttle to work. Like it's, it's not, it's not the same thing. And to sort of say, we've drawn a line. I, I think that was remarkable. And so, so now one to me, that just feels like God, anything is possible. Like that, 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 that seal has been broken. And then if we know that that's true and keep in mind, we have the best organizing tools in the world, right? Like throwing up a slack for everybody to say, let's jump in here and talk about what are the implications of what we do on truck drivers. That actually seems trivial, right? If you're going to say, okay, I'm at Waymo and I'm at, I don't even know all the truck driving companies, but there's 10 of them, right? And I'm all the engineers doing this stuff. They're already at conferences together. They're already sharing their publications together. Like open source is already there. They're answering each other's questions on Stack Overflow about their coding questions. Like they already know each other. The knowledge is already being shared for their work. So, so the leap from there into, and then what are the implications of it? I don't think is a big leap. I think this is a, a network that transcends what were typically the boundaries of labor organizing, which is like the break room, right? And again, like this is the same thing. It's like, I'd be on a job site when I was in the construction industry and like the boss work, walked in and the break room would just be silent. Like everybody just stopped, right? They're like, get your coffee, but like we're waiting. And it was just, and I didn't, you know, I was like barely, I was a teenager over started doing it. So I was like, I didn't even know what they were doing. They're just like, this way, it's not awkward if one time we all stop talking when they come in. Yeah. We do that every time, <laughs> you know? And, and and I look at that as instructive. It's like, okay, well, if you have your own Slack, like your boss doesn't know how many Slacks you have on your phone, how many workspaces, and that one of them is called the, you know, self-driving truck tech workers group. You're like, sure, of course you're in that because you're you got to answer each other's questions. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So I want to hit this inevitability thing from one other angle that I was just thinking about while you were talking. And so I'm working this out in real time. It may be very dumb, <laughs> but I want to think about three different kinds of changes we can make in society and, and the ways we would think about adoption. So think of a new consumer electronic product like VR, mm-hmm. um, a new drug like a, a meth variant, say. And then um, a new law. And one of the things that I I was thinking about in inevitability uh, is that we treat these things very differently, though they can all have in some ways quite similar effects on society. So um, with VR, which clearly has addictive potential, which clearly is something people get very lost in, which also can bring a lot of pleasure, bring a lot of like amazing, you know, I mean, I've used VR. I think it's remarkable. Um, We're just going to put that out there. It's going to keep getting better and cheaper as fast as we can possibly make it better and cheaper. And as people get it, like, that's just it, right? And, like, if we can sell them more of it, even better. I mean, that's the basic structure of capitalism. Then we have some products that we think if we did that with, it would be really bad, usually drugs, but not exclusively. And so it's like you can't go buy um, the new meth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it also might be a lot of fun and, you know, even for some people, not all that addictive. But we've just decided, like, you can't you can't do that because we think it would be. We think we need to have like a break on that. Hmm. And then with the laws, if we want to do anything, even very small things, right? Like let's say that we want people to be able to opt into a um, political system that has public financing in a real way. Hmm. Like, like we have to have a huge national debate and with high, very high veto points and it'll probably never happen. And so there is this funny way where I'm not necessarily saying we should move any of those things into any of the other categories. Um, but we are so locked into the idea that when things are adopted by consumer choice, it's viable that I think we don't 
think often about how many other models we actually apply mm-hmm. to, you know, often less important things. We, we have we have moved things actually between those categories. So when and I hate to go, go back to the Uber example, but they're so interesting in so many ways. Maybe some of them are good, but very few of them. But in this case, it, if we were going to say, you know, in the abstract 10 years ago, is New York City's Taxi and Limousine Commission corrupt? Like pretty much 100 percent right. yes. of people are going to say yes. Right. I look at like, you know, especially being, you know, Indian American, like South Asian community in New York City is like, yep, these people are corrupt. And, uh, you know, the medallion process is awful for, for being able to be a taxi driver. And, and it has a real impact on, on especially these like vulnerable immigrant families. So is there a problem? 100%. What is the process for fixing that? Well, one process would be, okay, you organize all the taxi drivers and everybody goes on a march in Jackson Heights and, and Queens and like, this is what we're going to do to make things change. And then they like, oh, we... We've kept medallion prices from rising by 20% this year. It's only by 18%, right? And that's that's victory. Meanwhile, Uber is like, we don't participate in the regulatory system around public transportation, right? <laughs> like, like, we're not part of the hailing infrastructure or, or under the rubric of the Taxi and Limousine Commission at all, um, which is almost, it's like, it's not even libertarian. It's like anarchist. It's this sort of like, we don't exist in your world. Um, it's wild how radical it is. Uh, and then they did it. Then they shipped it, right? And then they got tens of billions of dollars to be able to put that into people's hands. And and an interesting thing happens, which is like you, if they weren't a corporation, you know, if it was individuals doing it, it would be a mass public demonstration, right? Civil disobedience, a large scale. We're intentionally breaking the law at large scale. Now, when a corporate entity does it, it has a very different implication. But it's fascinating to me because then there's these sort of good and bad effects. Now, I mean, a good effect is absolutely like, you know, Brownsville doesn't have enough taxis and paying people for the like the dollar vans is hard and expensive and not flexible. And you have marginalized communities that don't have access to public transit because we won't build it. So being able to hail an Uber, especially when so many South Asian, you know, uh, cab drivers are really racist is like is important and valuable at the same time. Um, if taxi drivers, as they tend to do, are not being fair in who they pick up, well, when that happened with taxis, we were able to catch it. So they could look and say, oh, they're not going to the Bronx, and here's what we have to do. Now, in a completely unregulated world like Uber, we don't even have the data to know that they're not picking up people in certain neighborhoods, right? And so you don't, you, don't, you lose even the uh, ability to have policy redress. You lose the ability to say, therefore, we're going to introduce these remedies, and so there's a really interesting shift that happens where as long as they're on the side of the angels for some people, they're going to say, okay, Uber's a net positive to me or this sort of ride hailing is a net positive to me. And I don't care that it exists out of the regulatory framework entirely. But the implications of, you know, well, why did we develop regulatory systems? Yes, yeah, some of it was protectionism so that, you know, cab drivers could have an artificial monopoly. But some of it was about protecting the public interest. And those things are conjoined by the way we do policy. But we've already we've already said as a country, as a culture, certain domains are allowed to have the law be completely ignored at scale if you present yourselves in a certain way, have a certain amount of dollars, be affiliated with Google, whatever, whatever the signifiers are, uh, have an app. If you have a certain app in the app store, you're allowed to break certain laws. And there are going to be more areas where that's true. I mean, you know, we just saw, you know, as we're talking, it was just in the last couple of days. Robinhood is a popular financial management app, and it's good. I mean, they seem like decent people, but they were sort of like 
clearly trying to play a little bit of a game with like, we're going to introduce these high interest savings accounts. Now they're not a bank. So they were sort of saying, well, these aren't, you know, legally they're, they're some sort of uh, holding instrument that lets you keep uh, money that you might invest, but we're going to be able to pay interest on it and do these tricks. And of course, you know, they're like, these are not FDIC insured. You can't do this and we'll see how it plays out. I think in their case, they were probably well-intentioned and thought they could sort of get away with this little bit of finagling on it. And certainly it was effective marketing because probably half a million people made an account that wouldn't have otherwise. But what we're seeing is in the sort of financial realm, the same playbook, which is like we're a huge, massively capitalized company with some parts of our model that are really compelling and really freeing versus old systems that are entrenched and archaic and non-responsive. And we're going to use that to play fast and loose with the regulations that exist. That's a good bridge to to your next one, which is most people in technology sincerely want to do good. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, this is sort of like everybody wants, you know, everybody loves their mom and everybody loves apple pie. And like those things are true. But but I actually think, um, you know, at a, at a real fundamental level, like I, I'm, I'm lucky because I get to talk to a lot of, again, like the coders, the designers, the people doing the work, not even just the execs. And they're... It's such a cliche that it becomes that that sort of punchline in, in Silicon Valley, right? It's like we're gonna we're gonna change the world. That's what we want to do. But I think it's very earnest because there's a moment in which people discover technology, whether that's you know those of us who are lucky enough to have had a computer when we we're kids, or the people that like whatever they 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 get to access a computer or a phone at some point, and you just have this light up moment. You're like, I can do anything here, and especially if you feel like you can create, not just consume. Like, wow, I could do anything on this little box, this little device. And you immediately think of like, I could do something cool. And and it's it's interesting because it gets transmuted into other forms. But the the sincere impulse of like, if I have these tools, I could talk to the world and I could connect information together and I could solve problems and I know a better way to do this. That thing is still a through line and a very earnest one and in a world where very few people are earnest. And, you know, and it's not true, like, you know, I, I have friends in finance, whatever, and they're like, nobody's like, man, I'm going to put this money to good use, right? They're like, it is what it is. That's how the system works, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make my money on top of it. And which, you know, is not to my taste, but I like, I understand why they do that. And tech, very few of those people are, like, the execs and stuff, it's a different story. But the people writing the code are not, almost never primarily motivated by, like, this is where the money is, therefore I learned to code. Right. They really and like that might change as the boot camps and things take over, which is fine. But for the most part, you had to have been at some point a believer in order to become a person that creates technology. And it seems to me, though, that the friction the industry is going through is in the definition of what is good, Mm -hmm. that a lot of ideas that people in the tech world thought were clearly good. Like it's very clear to me that Facebook just believed yeah. Um, that a more open and connected world where people shared more stuff. Yeah. Like that was just good. That was a definition. That was like a subcategory of good. Yeah. And one of the things going on now is reconsideration of, well, maybe some of the things we thought were good aren't good or maybe are not good at that scale or maybe not good in an uncontrolled way. Yeah. And like that question of how do we decide and who gets to decide seems important. It relates to one of your others, which is that. When you um, in the the training people go through for tech, if you do a computer science degree, it's not there's not a lot of ethical training in that. Yeah. And, you know, this is getting better because this is a thing that people have been harping on for a few years is we're including, you know, some ethics curriculum in most computer science. I think that shifted from the vast majority did not have any to probably the vast majority will within the next few years. So so that's great. You know, you turned a corner and, you know, I, I 
Just watch the whole first season of The Good Place. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> they do a good job of that. They do. But, you know, I was saying, I was saying the other day. It's though, amazing that that show exists. It is a weird. It's a very. It's a strange place in culture that it that it occupies. But but you know, I was saying the other day, every business school has had an ethics curriculum for decades, and to my understanding, there are still people in business who have done unethical things. So, you know, it, it, it's not exactly an inoculation, right? It doesn't vaccinate you against ethical problems, but it gives you a common fluency where you no longer have plausible deniability if I didn't know that was a concern, right? At least you're like, I know these terms, I know this context, and I can no longer be ignorant or claim ignorance about the ethical considerations. But the, the broader conversation, you know, ethics exists in a context and is really only motivated by your peers and your community. And if people around you are sort of saying, "Yeah, you know, that's not the move. That's not what you want to what you want to do," and 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 you know, again, you look at you know I, the classic examples like the Enrons of the world is everybody saying, "Oh, whatever you can get away with goes," and there were certainly people at Enron that had business school degrees where they had had an ethics curriculum, right? So it's really are the people next to you saying, "We're not going to do this together," and I think that is a thing that that tech has turned the corner on. Uh, because everybody does want to be good. They do still have that impulse of like, we're supposed to be, you know, the good guys. We're supposed to be the people that are doing the right thing. One of the things that I think about as being complex in that is the way scale changes the nature of ideas. I look at some of these CEOs or designers or coders or whomever, and they often seem to me now to be trapped in an idea that mm -hmm. was maybe a good idea um, or at least an innocuous one, but is now so big and now they are its slaves. It is not their slave. Yeah. There's no way out. I mean, yeah. I think about this a lot with the social platforms where, you know, I think early on a Facebook, a Twitter, they're pretty innocuous. Yeah. And at a point they reached such power and such scale that the consequences of getting something wrong on them became larger than the consequences of what goes right on them oftentimes. I mean, yeah. you got to have a lot of sharing of nice photos to counteract your breaking politics the world over. Right, right. And But on the other hand, you know, if you're a Jack Dorsey or a Mark Zuckerberg or whomever, I mean, this is your institution and you are shaped by its incentives and you care about the people at it and you want it to become bigger. And like there's a lot of there's a lot acting on your own mind to get you to think of it as good. And it's not even that it isn't good. It's just that maybe it's too big yeah. right? or maybe it's too powerful. But you can't go to your shareholders and be like, I think it would just be good if we were only at 50 percent right. of the salience in people's lives are at now. And that just seems really hard. Yeah, and, and I think that's a that's a really accurate diagnosis. And you know, I look at this, I was building social networks before you know Jack or Zuck were, and and know them from back then, and um, and had the good fortune to have the networks that I built um, having failed or never thrived, and so never encountering those kinds of scale issues. Like the biggest network I helped run was Live Journal, and it was probably ten million people. And at that time, it was huge. Right? So, like, unfathomable to have, you know, 15 years ago that many people. But the sort of classic thing is, like, well, how many bad apples are in the bushel, right? And and at that point, it was two or three people or you know, who are really the sort of, like, bad, hardcore folks who are like, wow, this is really a problem. And, you know, whether it's law enforcement or policy or whatever, I have to get involved. And, you know, it, they were bad, but it didn't feel overwhelming. But also the thing that we forget is – with machine learning, with the sort of feedback systems, that what's different from that early era, the Friendster era or whatever of social media, 
is there's a there's an attenuation and an exacerbation of the worst tendencies like radicalization i mean youtube is a perfect example of this if you you know like if i'm saying you know i'm a prince fan and i want to see prince videos like it's going to be like as much as you can get right as much as like you could possibly find like more and more and more and more until you're like okay this is the you're wild into and i get this where they're like you know i have a kid goes on there finding videos of you know when he was a little kid about thomas the train you end up in conspiracy videos sort of two minutes later you know, or two links later. Um, and it's because they want to drive your engagement. They want to drive your attention. The more extreme something is, the more emotionally engaging it is. And so what's different from just scale is you've built an engine for radicalization and extreme emotional engagement, and you have more bad eggs exploiting that system. Because now when you're at the 2 billion user scale like Facebook is, the number of bad actors is millions. It's still a small percentage, but millions of people saying, I want to spend my time to game this system that is designed to get you increasingly engaged, emotionally agitated, and radicalized. Nobody's encountered that before. Here's a thought that I'm genuinely not sure is correct, but I think maybe, which is that what keeps tipping these platforms into being real dangers are the overlay of algorithm. I think Twitter got a lot worse and a lot worse for politics when it began getting more algorithmic, when the incentives became to write a tweet that the absolute most people would retweet or heart because then you would hit this kind of like algorithmic wave. And now 50,000 people would have done it or 100,000 people like the the incentives to do this kind of performative, high intensity, high emotion um, communication there. Uh, because it went way up because rewards got so much bigger. Obviously, Facebook, the newsfeed was one of the first. You're talking about the YouTube algorithm. A lot of what these companies do at their core strikes me as not just benign, but but relatively positive. I mean, I I kind of love YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. I think oh, yeah, it's it has, amazing. Like, we work with it. Like we have. I mean, I'm I'm so like astonished by the quality of the audience there and how much they want to engage with things that are long and interesting. But. It seems to me that the way, at least so far, we've built engagement algorithms keeps going wrong when you get enough scale. And I assume it keeps going wrong because the incentives on all sides are, are bad. Um, the incentives on all sides are to, you know, if you're if you're a bad actor, you can just go straight to trying to game the algorithm. And if you're the, one of the companies, it's like people are spending more time there. So what's really the problem? And if you're a good actor, now you're competing with people who are... Um, working too much to try to gain the algorithm, and that can distort your own work. And there's something about how we have tried to um, make action out of engagement that seems to be repeatedly not working or repeatedly failing in pretty similar ways. Yeah, I, I would reshape that into, I think that's an accurate diagnosis broadly, but I, I think that the the flaw in the algorithms is their amplification doesn't actually have enough inputs. Right. So they're saying, OK, the likes and hearts and shares, that's our meter, right? Views and, and, and page counts. And this actually even predates the sort of social media era when when Google first started to become dominant early 2000s, um, an entire industry arose called search engine optimization. And this was I, I, I sell flowers and I'm the mom and pop flower shop and I want to rank for, you know, Poughkeepsie flower shop. And so I'm going to make my site design try to appease the Google bots. Right. And there was no documentation. It wasn't like you do X, Y and Z and therefore your stuff goes up. It was just this magical like there would be a windfall for some folks mm -hmm. where like we just happen to get the right 
search engine ranking where we were the first result when you look for that. And then there were the people, the other extreme that were like, wow, I, I had that and it went away because Google changed something. I don't know what it is. It's totally opaque and I wish I could know. And it was almost cargo cult, right? They're like, if we sacrifice a goat, maybe our ranking will go up. And literally there would be these entire forums, a discussion of like, I think they like blue pages better than they like green pages, you know? And you're like, no, that clearly that can't be the rationale. And then every once in a while, Google will be like, sorry, it was, we made a you know mistake. Our bug is like, you know, we, we, we made this error. And so there's this learning process, but the, there was a meta learning process, which the entire industry had, which was, oh, there are opaque, unknowable algorithms. And if we share folklore with each other about how to appease them, we can win monetary value, right? That has economic value. So it's enormous multi-billion dollar incentives towards reverse engineering the algorithms, but only for the most diehard. Only the most obsessive. In those cases, it was because people that were building businesses. But then when you get into a sort of a more pure information economy, it's like, who are the people who are most motivated to get their ideas out there that couldn't do it over the top of like getting a book deal, getting on TV, being on a talk show, whatever the ways that people put their ideas out there? The people that have the wildest ideas, right? The people who were filtered out by the infrastructure, filtered out by the institutions. The people that the, the book publishers can say, like, that is a batshit conspiracy theory. We're not going to give you a book deal. They're like, well, I better figure out the algorithms of this system, whether it's search engine op optimization in the Google era or later, you know, Facebook's uh, ranking system for the news feed or YouTube's algorithm for videos where they're like, I just got to game this thing. I gotta, I'm going to be a reaction video to whatever is popular and that'll get my my story out there. And that feedback loop got stronger and stronger. And the interesting thing about that is the algorithms could have been designed to accommodate that and, and to anticipate and prevent it. And they are in other vectors. Because, it, again, if you say there's copyrighted content, all these networks are incredibly good. Like, you literally will have your video flagged before it's done uploading if you try to put, a, you know, a Beyonce song into your video. Because they're like, I am not messing with the record labels. Like, we can't risk it. It's an existential threat. So the technology exists or can exist to have real time, near real time detection of things that the business perceives as a threat to the, their network. And th they have not applied that same level of rigor and enthusiasm to saying, well, the spread of information that is harmful or dangerous is just important as a threat. And part of it is that there is a, a belief, and I, I was guilty of this when I was building social networks working in, in Silicon Valley. It's like, oh, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, and if we can just get all the ideas out there, then that'll stop the Nazis. And the truth of it is giving people a platform gives them a lot of value. You know what that did not do, among other things? Hmm. Stop the Nazis. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I mean, and, and the funny thing is what I realized is that the fundamental intellectual dishonesty of the argument that I myself used to to advance and that most of the social platforms still do is this simple thing is to say we sell advertising on our platform because sharing messages on our platform is very effective at persuading people to perform certain behaviors at the same time when people with harmful hateful ideas share net ideas on this exact same network and the exact same platform we argue it is not persuasive and not effective these things cannot both be true that's actually a good bridge to whatever number of this we're now on, which is um, technology is often built in ignorance of yeah. its users. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you know you got to you got to know who somebody is to solve their problems. Simple as that. And also, you have to 
desire to solve their problems, right? So if I'm building self-driving trucks, is my desire to solve the problems of a truck driver? Maybe, maybe not. So um, much I just want to know is encoded and know who somebody is. Yeah. Right. Like how much do you need to know about them? Yeah. What parts of them do you need to know? Yeah. And, and, and you know, and there's a million things of this where like I look at, again, an example I'm guilty of where, you know, I, I run a company called Glitch and we're a social network for coders. So it's a place they share their apps and their code. And one of the things that we're literally spending time on today is like, OK, we have to get better at uh, what we call uh, localization or internationalization. So every app you use, if it's got a global audience, translates the user interface into all these different languages. And it takes a little bit of work to prepare for. And then, of course, you have to write the, the actual text in the other languages you want to be in. And we're doing what I wish I had done in the past, which is before it's a huge issue and we have this huge technical debt, we anticipate it and start to get ready for preparing for that kind of localization or, uh, you know, translation. And, you know, in the past, what every company I'd ever worked at, including the ones I founded, had done was... Oh, we'll solve that when we get to it. Then you have an audience in Japan and an audience in China and an audience in France, and you got to get people to translate and they have a second class, you know, experience and it's, and it's poor. And I realized like, I, I care about getting these things right for everybody. And, you know, every company, and this is even about tech, every corporation in the world expresses its values through what it spends money on. Simple as that, right? Like There's that a great is, line I've always loved from uh, Joe Biden, where he says, don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. Yes, yes. He's, yeah, and he's exactly right. So listen, Uncle Joe. And and it's true for us too. And I was like, you know, sort of trying to hold the mirror up to that. Like, All right, I'm the guy setting the budget now. And what are we spending on? And then, you know, it's a relatively small example. Like I actually, you know, most of our user interface is emoji, so we don't have that much to translate. But in, in the case of like, you know, these, these broader considerations, um, is this in service to these people? And and what happens is this intersects with the, you know, the the diversity and inclusion problems in the tech industry, which is like those people aren't even around the table. If people aren't around the table, there's no way they've been anticipating the design process because you have to be, you know, you, you have to be superhuman to be able to anticipate problems for a person you've never met, right? And like maybe there are people with that level of empathy, but like there's not a lot of them and that's not a thing you can count on as part of your team. And so you want designers that are empathetic by design, but also just lived experience live perspective, those things have enormous value. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do, but when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? 
Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This seems to me to be another place where the massive scale of certain companies become moves something from being eh, maybe a bit of a problem mm-hmm. to like a real issue. Yeah. Which is when when you're a company making a product for some people, the idea that you would be making it for one kind of customer and not another, that's like that's not only not strange, that is how you build a company, right? Yeah. You have market differentiation, yeah. you're not trying to serve everyone. But if you're building like the new Civic Square worldwide. The fact that you understand one kind of user and not another becomes really important. The fact that you're built for one kind of user and not another becomes really important. And it, it does seem to me that it is when these companies that were built for one kind of person become something that everybody needs to be part of. Yes. That that becomes much more poisonous because otherwise it's like if you're not serving everybody, yeah, you're just a company that has made choices. But if everybody has to use you. Now you've created a, a form of a form of bias in an important system. Right. There's this coercive economic power they have where mm-hmm. there is no quitting Facebook. There is no quitting Google. Like that's not a thing. Right. right. And, 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 you know, it, certainly in the developed world, that's not a thing. And I look at, you know, at the point in which Facebook's platforms enabled the sharing of messages that catalyzed the genocide in Myanmar, they had basically no presence in the country. Nobody on staff that was, you know, spoke Burmese and was fluent in the, in the sort of political context. And I don't think 10 years ago, Mark Zuckerberg is like, I wonder what the politics in, in Myanmar are right now. Right. And nobody in the world saw like a former, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner was going to be like instigating genocide there. So, like, I'm not faulting anybody for not anticipating the most horrible things that can happen. The question is when they were saying, oh, well, we can enable a market there and we can enable people to share messages there. Did they understand the implications of what could happen and what the risk was? And do they have the obligation to be anticipatory? And I think they do. But they don't see that as their responsibility and haven't because nobody's had that responsibility before. Nobody's ever had 2 billion people as a customer of anything except for maybe Coca-Cola. But this seems like a huge piece, which is you have things that are um, at the size of a a government or the only the only things that have comparable size to, say, a Facebook are governments and religions. Yeah. Right. Like the government of China. And like Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like part of the problem we have in this conversation is it seems unfair to layer some of the kinds of critiques on just what is a company that we do. But these are very normal critiques for a government um, you yeah. know, or for or for other kinds of. Right. If the government commits goods. human rights abuses or allows them to. Or exist. even go lower. Right. If the education system is designed in a way that what is standardized into the testing, what is standardized into the way kids are evaluated, what is standardized into teacher training and the way teachers are are, are credentialed, makes it much easier for, um, let's say, like white kids to learn than mm-hmm. than non-white kids. Like we understand that's a problem. Right. Now, often we've just made that a problem. Right, but at right. least we have like a conceptual framework for talking about it. The problem is the one that we worked to create. Right. But it often seems like crazy when we talk about this with a Facebook or a Twitter or a whomever, a Google. And it isn't like, but we just don't have, we really don't have a category for a thing that is non-governmental, but this big in scale. 
again, with the kind of exception of religion. I mean, religions have had um, religions have catalyzed many a genocide in their yeah, time. Yeah. I have to think actually there's probably more to learn from thinking about religious governance. But I'm I don't know that space well enough to know what it is. Well, so there's an interesting thing, too, there where um, and religions share this trait of like, well, we had this operating manual and our intentions and then it went slightly awry in the implementation in the real world. Right. And or did it depending yeah, on who yeah, you talk to. Right. Right. But but, that, but that's that's sort of always the argument. Right. Yeah. Is that the, those are the outliers. And 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 this is actually why, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about the sort of neoliberal values of Silicon Valley, what has happened is an abdication of civic decision-making that we used to devolve to governments or governmental organizations being made by these unprecedentedly large corporations. And the interesting thing is Facebook, Google, any of them, they capture a very small percentage of the value they create in the world, right? It's actually, they're not very efficient in terms of um, like Coca-Cola captures 100% of the Coke sales in the world, right? <laughs> it's there. Like they're, they're sort of like very centralized. Somewhere some Coke executive is like, no, we don't. Right, right, it's right, like right. It's 97.6. Right, right, exactly. Damn yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The impurities in the system. But but the point is like they are the vendor of a product. And Facebook is like enabling communications that, you know, trillions of dollars of business are happening off of, you know, between other players that are not them. Google the same thing, right? So they're this like... In their view, they capture one percent of the value of the, what their network creates, and that's an interesting thing. What that ignores is they still have that outsized majority influence on the behavior mm-hmm. on those networks, and so what that ends up being, and that actually is very similar to government, right? The government is this thing where you're like, yeah, your taxes are X percent, but like compared to the value created, it's a tiny fraction, and so, but nobody would argue government doesn't shape what we're doing, and so. We've created policymaking bodies that have no accountability, no recourse, and in many cases, very little fluency in the areas they're creating policy for. And that thing is unprecedented. It is new. And I, I was always one of those people like, there's nothing new under the sun. Tech just takes existing human behaviors and amplifies them. And like, nope, that's not true. This is a new thing. Humans have never encountered this before. We have never designed a system resilient to it before. It is the thing, you know, they used to talk a lot about disruption and like disruptive technology. Like here it is. Everything's been disrupted. We disrupted democracy. We disrupted like the the idea of there being a public discourse. And now what? And and so like I, I think people, if anything, are underestimating just how deep a change technology has caused and also really not understanding like, these are not corporations in the conventional sense. Right. And there are some, I mean, you know, there's, there's great, like, I, I look at like Slack, right? So they're, they're a very successful multi-billion dollar company and they sell a product that lets you talk to each other, but like it's a business tool and it will be that. And it's not, I don't think it will have like within a company, people will be able to talk to each other in new ways and that'll be, you know, transformative or whatever, but it, it's not going to be socially disruptive. It's not going to be this like, oh, society changed in a way that we did not anticipate and can't understand how to react to. Right. And, you know, whatever other tools are out there, like even, you know, whatever Microsoft Word is not going to be this thing where we're like, I don't recognize the world anymore. But large scale social networks, you know, multi-billion user social networks are a thing that changes the world in a way that is unprecedented and that we have decided as a culture regulation is not going to fix. You used a word a couple of minutes ago, fluency. And it reminded me of an essay you wrote that, that I've always really liked called the price of relevancy is fluency. Do you want to just talk about 
fluency and, and, and the way you think about it? Because I think it's a useful concept here. Yeah, I think there's a, um, you know, there's always a context of, of culture of do you know, well, do you know your shit? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know who you're talking to? And are you speaking their language and understanding what you're hearing back? And it, it's important. A lot of ways, I actually, I start with this with like every comedian, like hack comedian in the world is like, you can't make jokes anymore. Everybody's politically correct. And I'm like, well, listen, the gig was always, could you do something your audience thought was funny? That never changed. You're just saying, I don't like the thing they think is funny now. Guess what? Then you're not a comedian anymore, right? That's the gig. If you're like, whatever, you make a restaurant, people are like, I don't want to eat your food anymore. You change the menu or you go out of business. And I, I think that that's the interesting thing is what they're resisting is I have to have a new fluency, right? So like step one there, and that's true of CEOs too, right? Where they're sort of like, you know, oh, well, the, the world is changing so quickly and you can't, you can't respond. And what do these millennials want in their job? It's like a uh, basic respect, fair pay. Like that's not a huge leap. And they're like, yeah, well, nobody's been talking about that for a while. I don't want to hear it. And so you say, okay, well, are you listening? Are you fluent in what people want and, and, and respond to? And this ties into technology in a very deep way too, which is this, why did Snapchat take off? It wasn't because people were like, well, I evaluated all of the photo filter options and the most technically impressive was this one. It's like my friends are there and it seems cool and people I think are cooler there and that's good enough. And then when you know people shifted from Snapchat to Instagram, same thing, right? All these things are about these decisions that happen in a social context where there's a fluency and a shared language and a shared context. And that is the cost of admission to cultural relevance, right? If you want to be a successful podcaster, if you want to be a big name on social media, if you want to be a culturally relevant figure as a executive, as a comedian, as a writer, as whatever you do, uh, then you have to have an audience that you speak to. It doesn't have to be everybody. It's not like you have to know everybody's possible world. But that expectation of fluency is, is, is more common. And then the most important thing is the rate of change is getting faster. So the number of new things you have to learn about how to talk to the world and be a public figure is increasing the rate, right? So the learning is constant. And it used to be, you know, in the, like, whatever, in the 80s, in the Johnny Carson era, you could have one shtick. And not, comedians would do this. They would have one set. And just do it for years, touring, right? Because if you're in the little Holiday Inn in some small town, they haven't heard the jokes. It's new to them. It's all good. Right now, people are like, oh, what it was up on YouTube. I already saw this thing. You got to have a new act. And that joke you made two years ago is no longer appropriate. And you need to advance. And people are like, well, that's a lot of work. I don't want, I want to be able to just do what people did 50 years ago and like take the same act on the road for 10 years all over the country. And I mean, the comedian example is interesting because they're sort of, a canary in the coal mine for culture overall, where civic leaders, social leaders, cultural leaders are like, why can't I do the same shtick forever? Why do I have to keep learning to be sensitive and thoughtful to new groups of people who you know, previously were marginalized? It's like, that's the cost of admission. But one thing that th there's one application of this to this debate about political correctness and offensiveness, and and which I think is really interesting and, and, and what you're drawing out. But it also just seems to me that part of the fluency problem that, that we have is that people, you know, you drop out of college, you start a company at 21 mm -hmm. or 20. Yeah. You don't know that much. Nope. I mean, I didn't know that much at 21 or 20. I don't know much. In, no. I don't know that much now. Like my, <laughs> like I'm a journalist. I've traveled the world. I've talked to like, there's so much I don't know even about the country I live in. Right. Um, but I was even more of a dipshit in my early 20s. Yeah, totally. And, and one of the things that I think is true about this is that the fluency being demanded from these kinds of people 
is probably inhuman, right? It's probably not actually possible. No, yeah. There's no um, way you can be like, oh, I know the political machinations in Myanmar, and I know the the architecture of an AI system, and I know how to design drones. But it means somehow that you have to build companies and organizations for fluency, or that other countervailing institutions in society, like regulators and governments and, and, and so on, have to be insisting on it or looking for it. But 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 there is something about as you keep jumping levels, right? As you become as you become a comedian who goes viral, or much more importantly, you become a social network that is worldwide, that it's not unfair, it's the price. Yeah. And like maybe actually, and and the reason I think this is like more relevant actually at the company level is that I'm sympathetic. Uh, I wish people would not treat getting criticized like it's the worst thing that could ever happen. Like it happens to me. Yeah. I don't love it. Um, but you can learn from it, right? Oh, God, you yeah. got to try to be yeah. open to it. But for these companies, one of the things like when you read all these histories of Facebook right now, you read just how much money went into the growth team. Right. How much money they pumped into that. Billions. The best people like give them whatever they want. Everybody gets a slide. Yeah. And it's like how much money went into the team of people who culturally understood Mm. every company Facebook was going. And yes, it probably would have cut expansion and it would have cut. Right. Yeah. Things would have happened and like growth would have been slower. But that is a choice. We don't treat it as a choice. That's right. But that's a choice. It's absolutely true. And fluency is expensive. Yeah. Like it just is because it doesn't scale. Or, or, yeah, it doesn't scale or you can abdicate it to institutions that have that fluency. So you can say in this case, in this context, in this country, we're going to abdicate to the local government about how we advance. But instead, they would always try to go over the top. There were lots of countries that were like, well, India is a good example. Uh, Facebook tried to do uh, a program called Free Basics in India, which was that they were going to provide subsidized internet access to uh, ostensibly uh, the poorest people there in order to be able to get access to the internet. So they'd say, Facebook's going to pay and you get these phones that have access, but you're limited to sort of three or four sites and like two of them are Facebook sites, right? And uh, it was interesting. There was a really great grassroots organizing effort to resist this in India because they're like, no, actually, we have a lived experience very recently of like Western companies coming in saying we're going to build infrastructure for you and it'll all be good. Don't worry about it. Right. And uh, and so there was a very strong pushback and and the program got shut down and 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 it was a really it was a striking defeat for Facebook. They hadn't because they, they're like, well, how can you be against free Internet? We're paying you free Internet they're like that ain't free. Right. And the God, I remember how I remember the reaction to that when it happened. And I think about how different the reaction would have been now. Yeah. I mean, there's this real like those ungrateful, like yes. they don't understand what they're giving up. Yeah. And I think if it happened in today's context, people would be like, yeah, like maybe keeping control of that made, made sense. It was such massively condescending response that Mark Andreessen, who is a Facebook board member, uh, you know, tweeted at one point, anti-colonialism is the worst thing that ever happened to India. Right. And of course, then, you know, the two things that are great about that is one, he did it on Twitter instead of Facebook. So like all the attention gets onto a different platform that he's not on the board of. So that's funny. But the other part was like he ended up not tweeting for years and sort of shut down his account because uh, the blowback was so hard. And, you know, of course, he would argue he was taken out of context or whatever. Uh, But, you know, Zuck had sort of did this sort of contrite post of like, oh, you know, we're listening and we'll keep trying and we just want people to have access or whatever. And I, I left him a comment actually on Facebook, which I don't use very often. And I just sort of said, like, Mark, a couple things to understand. Like, one, colonialism isn't some abstract, you know, what if. Like, my father, who is alive, was born a British subject, right? And, and this is the thing that caused millions of people to die. And it started exactly with, we're going to give you free infrastructure. Like, aren't you happy you have railways, 
right? So like this isn't this isn't some like hard to conceive of threat. This is a real visceral threat. And the other part is like you could if you want to give people free internet, you could just give them free internet. You can afford to. You've got the money in your pocket, like your couch cushions. You can provide internet to millions of people, and it would be trivial. And trust me, like have the confidence to know. If you provide a country with free internet for millions of people, they'll use Facebook, right? They'll use Instagram. Like, you don't have to twist their arms. They're going to be like, yeah. You know, and, and also, you know, for me, I was like, you literally spent millions in the U.S. pushing net neutrality, and then you're structurally undermining it in India. It sort of tells you what you feel about these people. Now, maybe you don't know what you're saying, but the, the values assertion there about uh, the humanity, dignity, and respect you have for these people uh, is very clear. And yeah, so you now you look at today and what's clear to me, you know, so there's all kinds of misinformation that spreads on WhatsApp in India. Um, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. And and uh, and it has resulted in mob violence, has resulted in all sort of negative, you know, uh, social issues and, and marginalization. And, you know, the most extreme examples of that we see in, in Myanmar, Sri Lanka and other places where there's been like large scale sectarian violence. But I think about not allowing... Facebook to bring free basics to India and not having to be the choke point of control for access to millions of people may have saved many lives in India in a real way. It may have prevented large-scale violence in many places where it would have been the only connectivity. And there's no way to quantify that. There's no way to know. You can never sort of prove the negative, right? But I, you know, it, just intuitively, you look adjoining countries with similar cultures that had large-scale availability of similar platforms have had massive sectarian violence happen repeatedly. So we're like, wow, why would they have risked letting this this platform come in? You know, I was talking to somebody about the Myanmar um, question not too long ago. And I was saying, you know, why don't they just shut it down there for a moment, mm -hmm. right? Like if, if it's having an effect that bad, what would not, it take? why not just say like, sorry, we're actually flipping the switch until we can, you know, as, as Donald Trump said, until we can figure out what the hell's going yeah. on, like just like we're not doing this or you can't do politics. And the answer, um, and this person, you know, knew what they were talking about, said, yeah, but but in Myanmar, like Facebook is the Internet. Like yeah. to shut it down, you're shutting down too much infrastructure. And I don't really know how to weight that, to be honest. Um, but it makes me think about what you're saying, which is that if it literally was the Internet. Yeah. If that's not like a right. like, a, oh, no, a like figurative. a lot of people use it, but like yeah. it, it literally is the Internet. But what we've ended up creating is an Internet defined by social bonds and groups and identities and, you know, uh, and all the rest of it. And so now you like really can't shut it down. So but I never thought about that in, in the India example, but it, it's persuasive, I think. But we do have – there's also – we have examples that we can learn from, and the one I would go to is security. So the, the tech industry over the last, I'd say, 20, 25 years has changed fundamentally on security in a profound way in that there's a culture of sharing and openness and a default towards best practices. So the security team at Google, even at Facebook – are unrivaled in the world. They really do care about their their systems being secure, even with all the. Now it's funny because they're you know Facebook's case, the policy team for partnerships and stuff screws them by sharing the data out there. But in terms of the reliability of the technical infrastructure, it's very good, uh, and Google certainly probably has the best security engineers in the world. And that came from you know the bad old days of like our Windows servers getting hacked you know every five minutes back in the '90s, and it was like you just. You know, you're like, oh, Internet Explorer always has a bug. Like this was the sort of commonplace thing, you know, as late as the early 2000s. And the culture changed, the community changed, the expectations around things like disclosure 
and whether you're going to share if you found a security vulnerability, all the way to where companies now pay independent researchers who find security bugs in their systems, and they call them bug bounties. So if, if I'm a person, I'm like, oh, I found out that uh, you know the Mac has a security bug that can let the information be leaked and you can take over somebody's computer. Apple will pay you a bounty. And even Apple, which is the most closed of any of these companies, will pay you a bounty and say, thanks for this. You responsibly disclosed it. We appreciate your help. And they work with academia. They work with the public sector, everybody. So that didn't happen overnight. That took decades. And it works pretty well. And there's even these weird conferences where you have, like, not necessarily good guy hackers in the room with the people trying to build secure systems. And they're like, we're going to share information. This sort of like, this is our detente zone. This is our DMZ. And we're allowed to just like talk about what's what's going on. That model to me seems like an interesting one for cultural security, for being able to be responsible about civic impact. Because if I report a cultural bug, as people did, there were people jumping up and down, waving their arms, desperately saying, please don't allow this information to keep being amplified in Myanmar. They, I don't think they even had a reporting mechanism, right? Because if you, if you email security at bigcompanyname.com, they will get the email and they'll, they'll review it and see if it's legit. And if you email that same address and you say there is a real danger of large-scale violence because your platform is enabling this message, there is no reporting email. There's nobody to review it. There's nobody to evaluate if it's true. And crucially, in security, they'll shut it down. Right? If Gmail were to get hacked and everybody's information were vulnerable and you could just troll all the accounts and pull the information out, Google would, I 100% believe, shut down Gmail for a day and be like, listen, you all have to just wait it out while we fix this bug. It's going to be some downtime, but we're going to get it right. And that has happened, not in Gmail's case, but in some of these other very large systems. And yet, if we had the same thing happening with actual violence, not your data, but actual violence, there is no way to shut it down. And so we have to look at these models like it is not that the industry is unable to come up with a model that works to respond. And they are, like I said, they're mostly good folks that want to do the right thing. And we can see that with what they did with security. We can see that with what they've done over accessibility, right? Like the, it's been transformative. Like if you're a blind user, your ability to use a mobile phone is eons, but it's like immeasurably better than the battle days with a mouse in, in the 90s, right? So like we've made these huge strides at like, accessibility and and security and these really important pillars of like, I can trust this device being in my life. And then there's this one around culture where all of a sudden they're terrified. They're like, these are making hard calls. Well, security is making hard calls all the time, right? And they're saying, oh, we can't possibly judge. Well, you're judging all the time when it comes to, am I going to enable a deaf user, a blind user to be able to use these tools? And, and they just haven't been able to make this leap into you're going to have to make the same kind of investment over the same scale of decades, over the same internal changes. There was a point um, in the early 2000s where Microsoft shut down all of their software development. We're like, we are focusing on security. We're putting everything on hold and we're going to, I, I called it uh, trustworthy computing. They're like, we're going to make sure everybody can trust our systems. And Apple does similar things where they're like, you know, this year our operating system is not going to have a ton of new features. We're going to focus on security and reliability and performance. Like they do these like house cleaning, spring cleaning. We're getting real serious and, you know, buttoning up our buttons and doing this stuff. And they're able to think of it in the domains that they they feel are theirs and the ones that they feel are, are, are their purvey. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's actually a good place to, to finish up. Um, so improve our fluency a little bit. What are three books you'd 
that you've loved that you'd recommend to the audience? Oh, gosh. Um, first one that comes to mind, I, I've been telling everybody to read. Um, David Ritz is one of the most uh, consistent and terrific chroniclers of uh, soul music and R&B music. And, um, and he actually is even a lyricist. He worked with Marvin Gaye on songs and things. But the sort of center to all of the many, many books he's written and the sort of artist that connects all the things that he cares about um, was Aretha Franklin. And before her passing, he wrote the definitive biography um, of Aretha. I think it's called Aretha. I mean, it's got one of those names where you got to Google for it. But David Ritz is the thing to look for. David Ritz, Aretha bio. And Aretha Franklin's story is, of course, music, but an incredible entrepreneur. She owned her own record label in the 60s, you know, as a black woman in the 60s to like own the entire infrastructure is unbelievable. Uh, she was in the heart of uh, the civil rights movement, you know, between her father's church and being asked to sing it at MLK's funeral. I mean, just like her place in history, it sounds like like Forrest Gump, right? Like just the sort of stumbling through every important moment of the last like 60 years. And it was just extraordinary. And it's so, so well written and, and you get to understand at a deep level, like, how somebody can overcome unimaginable pain and be an incredibly flawed person and still get there. So I, I think that's sort of one of the ones that comes to mind first. It's the best business book <laughs> that I've read in, in a long time. Um, so I loved that. I think of another one, not surprisingly, it's a, it's a Prince book. Uh, Dwayne Tudal wrote a history of Prince's time in the studio in 1983 and 1984. And for context, this is the moment in which he is creating Purple Rain, the movie and the album, but also um, four related artists. So he makes entire albums and, uh, you know, costumes and uh, uh, screen uh, representations for uh, multiple other acts at the same time. And, and he's 24 years old, uh, you know, at the start of this thing and, you know, starts it as a popular but not particularly huge R&B artist who's got a growing fan base and ends it as basically probably tied with Michael Jackson for the biggest star in the world with a simultaneous number one movie, number one album, number one single, and catalyzing a congressional hearings because Tipper Gore was so terrified by uh, the idea of people hearing, you know, the album Purple Rain that her kid had put on at the holiday party with the other members of Congress. So just and and the amazing thing about it is it is not a celebrity bio. There is nothing about you know who's he sleeping with. It is every day in the studio. This is a guy from the Midwest going to the, his factory job, clocking in and saying time to make the hits, and doing it all day every day uh, for two years straight as a, as a guy in his early twenties and um, and changing the world, doing something people could not have imagined was possible. And as a documentation of the creative process, and an unparalleled one, I think. Um, to think about, you know, the studio logs of like this day, the night before he used, uh, didn't go to the Grammys, had lost out to Michael Jackson, goes to the studio, clocks in, 24 hours later, he comes out having created One Dove's Cry with every single voice, every single instrument being from this one, you know, skinny kid in his mid-20s. I think that is one of the most incredible stories. Daniel Dash, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you to Anil for being here. You should check out his podcast, Function, uh, another Vox Media podcast network production. You can subscribe to it wherever you're getting your your pods. You should rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your audio. It actually does help the podcast if you're able to take just like three minutes and do it. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Jeffrey Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back oh so soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.